This audio production was made in collaboration with Audible Anarchist. Chapter 6 Terror Nullius Returns Civilization expands as the cold deserts thaw. Genocide and ecocide in the empty lands. Lives of liberty and slavery on the new frontiers. Altogether elsewhere, vast herds of reindeer move across miles and miles of golden moss, silently and very fast. From the Fall of Rome, W.H. Auden. Civilization expands as the cold deserts thaw. As we evolved in Africa, cold deserts have always been quite hostile to human endeavor and thus, while increasingly affected by civilization, they have remained largely undomesticated. This will not last. Reports from climatologists, indigenous peoples, sailors, seasonal site workers, and ecologists all confirm that the effects of global climate change are magnified in the far north. In Greenland, Sten Peterson leans down to harvest cabbages, something unthinkable a few decades ago. Through the newly ice-freed Arctic waves, survey ships push forward in search of oil, gas, and riches. In much of the far north, with the exception of those areas scarred by the legacy of Stalin's gulags and new cities, the intrusions of civilization are sparse or temporary, but they are increasing, and many think that we are on the brink of a new cold rush. Buried treasure becomes reachable, and previously frozen territory becomes more hospitable to settlement and agriculture. Civilization will expand as the cold deserts thaw. It's a dirty secret that many northern governments are actively looking forward to the effects of climate change on the lands they occupy, at the moment often only symbolically. There will be some winners in the increasingly water-rich thawing far north, just as there will be many, many losers in the water-stressed hot regions. Climate doesn't believe in justice. Quote, some regions of the world may experience gains from global warming in the next 20 to 30 years, such as more favorable farming conditions in some parts of Russia and Canada, end quote. Quote, the northern quarter of our planet's latitudes will undergo tremendous transformation over the course of this century, making them a place of increased human activity, higher strategic value, and greater economic importance than today, end quote. This transformation will be fueled by the climactic effect of fossil fuel burning and the opening up of new reserves. Quote, the region could be home to 90 billion barrels of oil, worth a whopping 7 trillion at the current oil price, and 30% of the planet's untapped gas reserves, according to the U.S. Geological Survey. End quote. Earlier, we looked at climate conflicts and focused on hot wars, but cold wars over the control of newly accessible hydrocarbon, mineral, and land resources are also possible, though they would have a fundamentally different character. Quote, Cold areas are generally economically developed countries, and hot areas are generally developing countries. Conflict among developed countries might lead to concentrated fatalities, while those in developing countries might lead to conflict that is more diffuse. Where the hot war is characterized by the breakdown of state functions and internal strife, the cold war exemplifies conditions of expanding state control and external conflict." End quote. The emergence of a new cold war once again primarily between east and west centers of power, though this time solidly about the far north, is on the cards. 
For now, the probability of full-on war in the new polar tension belt is far less than that in the hot areas of the planet, not least as many of the countries in question are nuclear powers. Fracas resembling the UK-Icelandic Cold Wars, combined with diplomatic grandstanding, such as the recent planting of the Russian flag on the seabed of the North Pole, will no doubt increase. The only thing that will categorically prevent conflict in the region is if it's found there is nothing worth scrapping about. This is unfortunately unlikely. The opening up of the very sea itself brings new possibilities for trade and movement, even if little is found below it. There is a forgotten contingent in this story. Quote, Antarctica will see enormous changes due to terraforming that will create opportunities for economic exploitation. With many sovereignty claims in the region, there is a chance that conflict will be the outcome. End quote. There's a lot of ice on Antarctica, and significant disputes are unlikely to hit until mid-century, if not much, much later. But that does not mean states are not laying foundations. It is a cruel irony that much of the science that has enabled awareness of climate change and allowed glimpses of past climates has come through the sterling efforts of scientists working in state institutions. The British Antarctic Survey, for example, whose presence in Antarctica is in large part funded to underline imperial claims over a continent that's true conquest and domestication can only come through massive climate change. In the meantime, the seas of the far south, especially around the disputed Falkland Islands, are increasingly party to oil prospecting. Ecocide and Genocide in the Empty Lands When the British state declared Australia terra nullius, it was defining the land as empty. The peoples, the wildness, were to be made invisible, unbearable. If perceived at all, they were seen, correctly, as obstacles to progress. In the far north, as in colonies generally, much of the land is already a peopled, and from a wider perspective, animaled. There are wonders in the tundra that civilization must lay to waste in the cause of emptying and occupation. In his beautiful exploration of the Arctic, naturalist Barry Lopez describes lands he loves. Quote, the Arctic, overall, has the classic lines of a desert landscape. Spare, balanced, extended, and quiet. The apparent monotony of the land is relieved, however, by the weather systems moving through, and by the activities of animals, particularly of birds and caribou. And because so much of the country stands revealed, and because sunlight passing through the dustless air renders its edges with such unusual sharpness, animals linger before the eye, and their presence is vivid. Like other landscapes that initially appear barren, Arctic tundra can open suddenly, like the corolla of a flower, when any intimacy with it is sought. One begins to notice spots of brilliant red, orange, and green, for example, among the monotonic browns of a tundra tussock. A wolf spider lunges at a glistening beetle. A shred of muskox wool lies inert in the lavender blooms of saxifrage. The wealth of biological detail on the tundra dispels any feeling that the land is empty, and its likeness to a stage suggests impending events. On a summer's walk, the wind-washed air proves deathlessly clear. Time and again, you come upon the isolated and succinct evidence of life animal tracks, the undigested remains of a ptarmigan in an owl's casting, a patch of barren ground willow nibbled nearly leafless by arctic hares, 
you are afforded the companionship of birds, which follow after you. They know you are an animal. Sooner or later, you will turn up something to eat. Sandpipers scatter before you, screaming to Ituek, an Eskimo name for them. Coming awkwardly down a scree slope of frost-riven limestone, you will make a glass-tinkling clatter. And at a distance, a tundra grizzly rises on its hind legs to study you, the dish-shaped paws of its front legs deathly still. But already, even in uninhabited lands, one cannot miss the evidence of upheaval, nor avoid being wrenched by it. The depression it engenders, because so much of it seems a heedless imposition on the land and on the people, a rude invasion, can lead one to despair. End quote. The present scale of industrial invasion is merely a portent of the coming ecocide engendered, as the high latitudes warm, by the peppering of the far north with more cities, roads, installations, fields, and factories. This process will also be one of attempted genocide. Herders, such as some of the Sami of Lapland and indigenous of Siberia, will likely find their homelands increasingly fragmented and polluted, whilst those communities living on resource-rich land will face eradication, either by simple dispossession or by assimilation into the industrial culture. In a few places, such as Greenland, where much of the indigenous majority may gain some material benefit from the denudation of their thawing lands, this process may be partly indigenous-driven. In most, however, where aboriginal communities are minorities, there will be familiar patterns of repression and resistance. This future story of a clash between old, cold worlds and new ones warmed by the white heat of the technological revolution is already past and present. Tales of dispossession and destruction are many, yet so is resistance. For example, despite few resources, some of the Siberian tribes have fervently opposed the expansion of gas and oil infrastructure on their traditional lands. In one action, a hundred Nivk, Evink, and Ulita blocked roads with their reindeer for three days against new oil and gas pipelines. In Canada especially, the government and corporations are faced with indigenous warrior societies with a strong land ethic and a growing fighting spirit. While there have been, and will be, victories in the battle to stop the northern spread of empire and its infrastructure, even the most resolute peoples cannot halt climate change itself. Indigenous peoples report that lives and the survivability of life ways are already being affected. As Violent Ford, an Inuit says, quote, we can't predict the weather anymore, so it's very difficult to plan our hunting. It puts a lot of stress and fear into our communities, end quote. Similar reports come from the Russian Arctic as well, where changes in ice and snow melting is causing culture change and endangering the reindeer herding lifestyle of the Nenet herders on the Yamal Peninsula. On a bright day on a storm-tossed cape, I walked with a friend surrounded by forest, waves, osprey, and orcas. Far from any road or village, the place felt pristine, but amongst the trees were the rotting remains of a school. Rusting farm implements littered the undergrowth, and former fields were now the hunting grounds of cougar. Remoteness from markets, the illogic of politics, and land unsuited to colonization by an imported model had led to the evacuation of this coast. It reminded me that despite the wishes of those who plan worlds, settlements sometimes fail and the wild wins. This will continue to be true. <laughs>
Lives of Liberty and Slavery on the New Frontiers. Possibilities will emerge as the cold deserts retreat for those who wish to settle, invade, resist, and work. Who will populate these new lands? Physical landscapes and the social terrains of struggle frame what we think is possible and thus what we do. In 19th and early 20th century North America, individualist anarchism, especially that influenced by Henry David Thoreau, was framed directly by the idea and existence of frontiers, and thus the real ability to build some level of autonomy and self-sufficiency, admittedly on stolen land. In crowded Europe at the same time, there is less outside available, and so despite strong currents with an ecological and anti-civilization perspective, many individualist anarchists turn to bank robbing, insurrection, assassination, and art. We can expect the opening up of new lands within Europe and North America to have a significant impact on both those who wish to desert civilization, as well as those who wish to expand it. There will be many possibilities for lives of liberty on the expanding frontiers. Though dropouts and renegades may themselves lay the foundations for a wider gentrification of the wilderness. It would be lovely to think that a thousand anarchist log huts will bloom, but more prevalent are likely to be work camps and farmlands resembling something between Dubai's modern gulags and the new Chinese farming and logging colonies of Siberia. In the UAE, desert migrant workers live in horrific conditions and are bussed in and out of Dubai daily to build a new super city. They have no rights of citizenship no rights to stay beyond a fixed-term contract, almost no spouses or right to marry or cohabit. Families rarely exist, no official unionization. Frightened by an Indian demographic time bomb, Dubai's rulers have initiated a complex immigration quota system where migrants are brought in from diverse countries to keep workers socially divided. In Siberia, 600,000 Chinese workers cross the border in seasonal migration every summer to work the new fields. So there will be lives of slavery, as well as liberty on the new frontiers, and with worsening prospects in much of the warming world, and the promise of hard currency, many will choose them. Readers with anarcho-syndicalist leanings may notice a striking similarity of such situations with that of the logging and mining camps that were the battlegrounds of the Wobblies. The IWW was the only workers' organization that had any successes in uniting lumpen migrant workers of diverse nationalities in early 20th century America. Culturally divided and without recourse to legal unions and other organs of social democracy, militant informal syndicalism could arise in the new North, possibly even informed by anarchism. Parallels between old and new frontiers are laid out well by climatologist Lawrence C. Smith. Quote, An envisioning of the new North today might be something like America in 1803, just after the Louisiana Purchase from France. It, too, possessed major cities fueled by foreign immigration, with a vast, inhospitable frontier distant from the major urban cores. Its deserts, like Arctic tundra, were harsh, dangerous, and ecologically fragile. It, too, had rich resource endowments of metals and hydrocarbons. It, too, was not really an empty frontier, but already occupied by Aboriginal peoples who had been living there for millennia. End quote. While the extent of civilizational expansion in the New North is, like so much in climate change related futurology, presently unknowable, the trend itself seems a given. In some places it can be resisted, 
and successfully. In others, the hubris of settlement will simply fail. In many places, its very expansion brings possibilities for those who would live in new openings or in old but warmer worlds of the Gear Falcon. This has been a production of Audible Anarchist. You can find more Audible Anarchist on YouTube.